Father God, we pause to remember the fact that we have free access to you, our Heavenly Father, through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you for the cross, especially this morning, but every single day, every moment of the day when we're reminded of our own personal struggles, our weaknesses. Lord, we are weak, you are strong. And even now, Father, we want to confess to you that we are very distracted people, that we are people who have so many windows open in our minds, even in corporate worship. So I pray that we would remove those distractions by your grace and by the power of your spirit right now, and that we might focus on hearing from you through your word. Father, help your servant even this morning as we look at this great gospel of Mark, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We are back in this great gospel together after a long detour, right? We have uh, obviously taken a detour to just address some issues in our country that I think would have been pastorally irresponsible and not very caring for you if we wouldn't have addressed some of those things from the Word of God. But we're back in Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this week. And the title of this morning's message, and this is going to be a two or three parter, okay? I know you're shocked that I'm doing that yet again, okay? But it is going to be at least a two parter, maybe even a three parter. And the title of this message is Marriage, Remarriage, and Divorce Through God's Eyes. Marriage, Remarriage, and Divorce Through God's Eyes. We've been meeting with a sweet couple that some of you know who this is, but I'm not going to call them out by name here, but we're meeting with a sweet couple for premarital uh, these last few weeks and months, and uh, just talking about issues regarding marriage and obviously communication and um, uh, being having a Christ-centered devotional life and all of those things that are critical for a marriage, and we have just been reminded again and again of marriage as the grace of life. Marriage is a grace of life. 1 Peter 3.7 puts it that way, where husbands are essentially encouraged to treat their wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life, which is marriage, marriage. And so I hope that you feel that way this morning, even as we delve into this issue of marriage and related topics like remarriage and divorce through God's eyes, I hope and I pray that you are grateful this morning for your spouse if you are married and that you desire if you are single, young or older, unless the Lord has specifically gifted you with the gift of singleness, that you are looking forward to marriage and that you do see marriage as a grace of life, as unmerited kindness and favor that we do not deserve that God gives us here in this world. I feel that way. I hope you feel that way as well. But you know, not everyone has this perspective. Not everyone thinks this way. There are many in our society who have a very negative view and perspective of marriage for various reasons. And marriage for them is not a blessing. It's something to be avoided. It's something to run from rather than run toward. All you have to do is look at our society and some of the prevalent views out there about marriage. You know, statistics aren't always 100% accurate nor completely indicative of the full picture of something. I, I recognize that. But sometimes statistics can actually be helpful if done and represented well. In a recent survey on the state of marriage in America, almost 4,000 Americans were interviewed all over the age of 18. And listen to this. About a third, that is one out of every three of those people that were interviewed, 
had already been through one divorce, at least one divorce. And 18% of them had been divorced more than once, two times, three times, multiple times, multiple divorces. Now, we can understand that kind of stat when we're talking about non-Christians, people who don't want anything to do with God or who are indifferent to God. But what's mind-blowing is this, that the statistics for evangelicals, broadly speaking evangelicals, people who at least profess Christ as their Savior, were almost identical. Almost identical to that of the non-Christian world. In fact, one percentage point lower at 32%. About a third of those surveyed professing evangelicals had also been through at least one divorce. Now, mind you, just because someone says that they're a Christian doesn't mean that they are. We understand that. And also statistics, the stats didn't indicate whether uh, those who were divorced once or multiple times did this before they professed Christ as Lord and Savior. That would be important to take into consideration. But if we just take those statistics at face value, it's eye-opening to think about those stats, isn't it? That that many professing evangelicals would actually have experienced divorce. What were people's attitude toward marriage? Most Americans, over two-thirds of these Americans interviewed, rejected the notion that marriage was a desirable thing to pursue. And not only that, but they didn't see anything wrong. In fact, it was okay to pursue divorce. Beyond the financial burden of divorce, they saw it as something that was a social construct. Marriage is just a, a social construct, a social institution created over the history of humanity. It's outdated. And now it's to be avoided. Think about that mentality. It's so prevalent in our society. And you ask, well, what about the believers? What about Christians? Surely, surely this was different. Not so. At least not majorly different. Almost half of professing evangelicals believe that divorce is okay. And that if God wants us to be happy, if that is the goal of marriage which we know it isn't, if God wants us to be happy, then it's okay. If that person that you're married to, you're not happy with them, then you let them go, you separate. Because after all, what God, what good and kind God would ever want us to be unhappy, right? So even the perspective of Christians was twisted in these statistics. Well, there's a lot more of these stats that we can talk about. And maybe for us, as we hear some of these, we think, well... I mean, those seem so impersonal. I mean, it seems like that stuff is out there, right? Surely not amongst us. And beloved, we know that that isn't true. I'm sure that for you, as for me, this is a very personal thing for some of us more than others. How many of us don't have personal stories, both in our marriages with regards to the struggles that we've had in our own marriages, or maybe marriages in our immediate family, or perhaps extended family, things that we can share. If I were to ask people to come up here and bear witness to some of the pain and the hurt connected to marriages, broken marriages, struggling marriages, and your immediate and extended family, we would all have stories. And beyond that, of of co-workers, people in our workplaces that have had troubling times in their own marriages or are currently doing that, having those difficult times. People in the church who struggled with this, 
All of us to some extent or another because marriage is hard work. Amen, married couples? Amen? Marriage is hard work. I don't understand how non-believers do this. If it's hard work with Christ at the center, I don't know how people do this without Jesus. That's why we need Christ first and foremost. Just in my own experience, I did a little experiment these last couple of weeks as I was reflecting on the troubles of marriage and marriages that I've known of. And I began to think of 17 marriages, people who I was acquainted with in former churches, not Calvary, okay? But 17 marriages in particular, people in past churches that I was familiar with, maybe going back to my college and career years. And out of those 17 marriages, would you believe that now, years later, 11 of those couples that at one time professed to know the Lord are no longer together? 11 divorces. Some of them have gone on to have a couple of divorces and another marriage. Five of those 11 were marriages that ended in divorce due to unrepentant adultery in those marriages. Most of those people are not walking with Christ anymore. I mean, all of us would have testimonies like these. And the issue is not to highlight and underscore this to cause anyone, even amongst us, pain. Because I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, this morning that the gospel brings forgiveness even if that has been you in a situation like that. If you are a believer who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that there is absolute forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. God can forgive us of anything when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we think about these things, whether in our country, in our society, or in our personal lives, we need to remember there's nothing new under the sun, right? Human depravity, because of human depravity, and because of human sinfulness, people have gone away for a reason because of sin from viewing marriage as a gift of life, as a grace of life, and instead they see it more like a curse, like a necessary evil that you might pursue. Even something that is a choice if you're married to either leave or take as you please. Because of human sinfulness, this is a reality in our society. And that's why, I, as we keep encouraging you as your shepherds over and over again, even through this pandemic, beloved, this is an opportunity for us here at Calvary Bible Church to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Even with relation to this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, the gospel is the answer for broken marriages. The gospel is first and foremost the answer for your broken vertical relationship with God, that you are an enemy of God apart from Jesus, but because Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life that you could never live, to die in the place of sinners, to pay for our sins, and rise from the dead three days later by trusting in Him, we can be vertically reconciled to our Maker. This is the answer vertically, first and foremost, to put our trust in Jesus. And then obviously, as an outflow of that vertical reconciliation through Jesus Christ, that's got implications for our horizontal relationships, including our marriages, our parenting, our workplace, our love for one another as brothers and sisters, and our relationship to the non-believer. The gospel is the answer. And I hope you believe that. 
And especially during these troubling times of uncertainty, I hope and pray that the gospel is everything to you personally and that this is what you're trying to display before a lost world, even in your marriage. So this is a critical issue for us. And that's why our passage this morning is so, so important. Because it's here in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, that Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And we find out what God thinks. And as we said last week, when we encouraged you to be a person who gets in the word, a a man or woman of the word, ultimately, it doesn't matter what our society says. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what our culture says. What matters is what God thinks. Amen? That's what matters. And when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so we want to know about what God thinks about this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. We're going to look at that through his eyes. All right. So Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, uh, 1 through 12. Let me read this to it for us. Mark 10, verse 1. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This is the word of God. I want us to see Jesus' teaching here on marriage, divorce, and remarriage through four movements, four transitions in this text, okay, that help us think through this issue rightly and motivates us to cultivate a marriage that displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to look at four movements in this passage and in the process learn what Jesus teaches on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Okay, we'll call the first movement the strategic setting. The strategic setting in verse 1. Look there. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Stop right there. This is a very key strategic setting that Mark is indicating for us here in verse 1. Back in chapter 9, verse 33, we're told that Jesus had been in in Capernaum with his disciples. Capernaum, if you remember, was Jesus' ministry headquarters. And he and his disciples had been, prior to this, in Galilee for about a little more than a year. And now, getting up, they depart from there to never return to Capernaum again. And they head south. Listen to this, toward Jerusalem for their final journey for the events of Passion Week. In fact, Mark chapters 11 through 16 focuses our our attention on the last week of Jesus' life on earth, his Passion Week. And what Mark doesn't record here, beginning in chapter 10 and verse 1 and following, are six months of ministry in Judea that Luke chapters 10 through 18 records. 
Mark simply skips over those six months of that Judean ministry and simply tells us that Jesus began his final journey to Jerusalem to go to the cross. Remember, again and again through these action words like and and immediately, Mark is saying to us, he's he's the gospel of movement. I want to get you, reader, to the cross of our Lord as quickly as possible. And so he's going to do that. And so Jesus travels here to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Most likely, this would have been a place by the name of Perea. Perea, an area in the region of Judea, but located on the east side of the Jordan River. And it's here in Perea that verse 1 tells us, if you notice, that crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. These crowds were comprised of two primary groups, if you will, primarily um, Jews who lived in the region of, 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 of Perea, who are well aware of Jesus's, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a famous person. His fame precedes him as a preacher and as a healer and all of that, even though, as we've seen before, they didn't fully understand his identity. But these Jewish um, uh, 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 residents there knew about Christ already. But also by this time, this is important, There were also pilgrims, travelers, who were headed down to Jerusalem already for the great Passover feasts. Thousands of them already heading there. In fact, it's estimated that approximately 100,000 people, or a little bit less, lived in Jerusalem. But during the Passover feasts, roughly 3 million people poured into Jerusalem. You can imagine the, the electrifying environment that that would have been. Well, there are already pilgrims who are beginning to head down to Jerusalem for these feasts by this time. Anyhow, it's here in Perea where Jesus encounters massive crowds once again. And verse 1 tells us that as was his custom, he's ministering to people. He was continually teaching them is the sense of the verb there in verse 1. Not just once, but it was this ongoing thing. We've seen over and over again that, yes, Jesus healed. Yes, Jesus did amazing miracles. But those were authenticating, attesting miracles to point to his identity as the Son of God. But his primary thing was pointing to himself as the king, as the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. So he's preaching, he's teaching the parallel account of Matthew 19.2 also tells us he was healing some of the people there. And obviously our Lord, when he ministered to people, you understand, he wasn't healing people because he was trying to put on an act or a show. He genuinely had compassion for people from the heart, right? We've seen that again and again and again, that the Lord interacts with all kinds of people who have specific physical needs. And as he preaches and as he teaches concerning this future kingdom, He continues to display compassion for them. He's always ministering. But what I want you to take note of this here is that this location is very strategic given what's about to happen. And I think Mark is indicating this for us. Given the issue that's about to be discussed with the Pharisees. Why is this location important or this is strategic here? Because Perea, hear this, is a region ruled by one named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. You remember that guy? Back in Mark chapter 6, Herod Antipas was the wicked ruler who put John the Baptist in prison because John the Baptist had confronted Herod Antipas about his adulterous marriage with Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. You remember that? And so we saw in Mark 6, 
But this brought repercussions for John the Baptist. Eventually, Herod Antipas had John the Baptist beheaded at the request of Herodias' equally wretched daughter, who danced before a bunch of men, including Herod Antipas, and pleased them to such an extent that Herod offered her even half of his kingdom, which wasn't even his to give. And so he received counsel from Herodias and had John the Baptist beheaded. And so let me ask you this, knowing that context and remembering Mark chapter 6 and that soap opera that was so perverse centered on Herod Antipas's adulterous relationship, let me ask you, do you think that these Pharisees know who rules Perea? Do you think that they understand the issue that was so talked about in that area surrounding the murder of John the Baptist? Of course they did. Of course they did. And so this is a very strategic thing here that we see in Mark, which leads us to the second movement in our passage, the cunning interrogation. The cunning interrogation in verse 2. Here come the Pharisees. Yet again, as the Lord is ministering to people, and notice, by the way, that Jesus is always focused on, on ministering to people. And what are the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees, always focused on? It's the next controversy. It's the next pet issue, the next conflict, as he's focusing on ministering to people. Here they come again in the midst of that. Look at verse 2. Some, the some there is not in the original, it's italicized, it's added for clarity, literally, Pharisees, came up to Jesus. Pharisees came up to Jesus. Again, we've seen these guys before. These are the religious, rigid legalists of Jesus' day. These guys are crafty. These guys are cunning. These guys hate the Lord Jesus. And they come challenging our Lord with a question. They come challenging him with a question. Is it lawful for us to divorce our Wives, is it legal? Is it legal? This is a cunning challenge. The sense is that they were continually questioning him. Not because they were so teachable. This isn't these Pharisees coming and saying, we're so humble, Lord. We want to just sit at your feet so that you teach us uh, of your mindset on these issues of marriage and, and so forth. They're not coming in humility. They know what Jesus thinks they know what Jesus has taught even on the Sermon on the Mount. Notice their motive was evil. Verse 2, they were testing Jesus. Testing him continually is the sense of the verb there. Imperfect tense. They were repeatedly testing him. This was an interrogation of the Lord. It was like Jesus was already on trial. We're getting a little bit of a snapshot of what's going to happen even during Passion Week. Where rather than really wanting to know from Jesus who he is and wanting to understand his messiahship and all of that, these religious leaders simply want to interrogate our Lord. They want to entrap him. So they're questioning in verse 2, whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. What do they want to know? Hey, Jesus, is it, are we allowed to leave? Is a man allowed to leave his wife? They don't care about nuances. They don't care about parameters. They don't care about this Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, justified divorce. They don't care about any of that. All they care about is, is it legal? 
Do we have a right to leave her? Matthew 19.3, the parallel account says that they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? During this time, there were two primary schools of thought. On the one hand, you had the school of the teacher Shammai. Shammai. And the school of Shammai interpreted the law of Moses more rigidly. They only allowed a man, generally speaking, to divorce his wife on the grounds of her being guilty of adultery. That was it. On the other hand, you had the school of Hillel, the Hillelites. And these guys essentially permitted a man to divorce his wife for virtually any reason at all. What were some of the reasons you could divorce your wife? Listen to some of these. For not being able to have kids. How about this? You could divorce your wife for your wife raising her voice at you. (laughs) How do you like that, some of you husbands? Or vice versa, right? You could divorce your wife for disrespecting you in any way, talking back to you, giving you a dirty look. How about this? For disrespecting your parents, you could divorce her. Yikes. For not being a good homemaker, for not being a good cook, if you burned a meal, ladies, your husband could leave you. Or if the house was disheveled, not taken care of well, according to what, how it, what pleased him, you could divorce your wife if she was immodest in any way. If she showed her ankles accidentally in an inappropriate manner. Man. Rabbi Akiba, I hope I'm saying that right, Akiba, Akiba, one teacher interpreted finds no favor in his eyes as meaning that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman who was better looking. Man, that one shouldn't shock us. People leave, isn't it, isn't it true that in our society and in our culture, people essentially leave one another for an array of reasons, including that last one. As soon as you find somebody else that is better looking or treats you better or you fill in the blank, you can leave your spouse for any reason at all. Gone are the days of of, of commitment. Long gone are the days of being a person of your word, even with regards to marriage and the marriage covenant and the promise that you make to one another. Long gone are the days when you keep your promises to other people, including with regards to the institution of marriage. Beloved, as we look at our society, we can understand some of these things that I just mentioned might seem petty to us. But if we were to watch a video behind us giving story after story of people in our society and the reasons why they leave one another, they would be very consistent to those reasons. And maybe some that would be even more atrocious than those, right? Some of us can even bear witness to some of that in our own experience, having seen people go through divorce for multiple reasons. So gone are the days of honoring one another's promise. Instead, people like old shoes, you just discard your spouse when someone comes along that, is, that you deem better and you leave them. Who cares? Who cares? Well, these were the two primary schools of thought. And you ask, which one of the two views prevailed in the culture of the day? It was the latter. The latter, the liberal view. 
By this time, the leaders of Israel were practicing a a sort of free divorce, leaving their wives for any number of trivial reasons, some of the ones that I mentioned. And if the leaders were doing this, you can understand how the Jewish people were following the example of those leaders. Because as the leaders go, so do the people, right? So such was the mood of the age by this time. And the historical context that is so important for us to remember as we look at the rest of this passage, not only next week, but potentially the following. This was the the mood of the age regarding this issue of marriage and divorce. And so these Pharisees are looking to trap Jesus, to corner him, to get him in trouble, even potentially to get him killed. They have evil intentions. They're not humble coming to him wanting to learn, wanting to have a helpful dialogue and learn from the ultimate teacher And so all of this really sets the context for the teaching which follows. And next week we're going to see how Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. But for now, brothers and sisters, I want to leave us with this. That when we look at the state of marriage in our country, how critical it is for you and I as Christians especially to cultivate a godly, Christ-like marriage. Amen? How important that is for us to be people who cultivate a godly marriage. How critical. You see, the issue for us as Christians, contrary to society and the mindset in our world, is not just about putting up with one another in marriage. Somehow, by our own moral bootstraps, making this thing happen out of a duty-driven kind of mentality and, and just putting up with one another and staying in marriage reluctantly. That doesn't get to the heart of the issue. For us as Christians, it's different. For us who have been transformed by the the transforming gospel and who operate by the power of the Spirit of God and the grace of God, it is to see marriage as a grace of life, as something that you and I don't deserve, a great gift of God for you and I, a blessing from the Lord. Can I ask you this morning, What is the state of your marriage? Honestly. Do a brief diagnosis of your heart even now and ask the Lord, what is the state of your marriage today? Brother and sister, are you working on your marriage? Are you working diligently to cultivate your marriage? Or have you become stagnant, passive towards your spouse? Just sort of going through the motions. You know, when we're dating our spouse, what do we do? We are so, actually, even before dating. I mean, I was all over trying to reach out to Andrea, being around in every context that I could find her. Eventually, she started going out with me after she sent me flowers. No, she didn't send me flowers. I did that that to her. I was pursuing my wife. That's often what happens with us as married couples, right? Maybe we've been married a number of years. And before we were married, even before we were dating, we were really, really aggressive at pursuing our spouse, to be spouse. Dating them, taking them to special places, thinking about thoughtful things to do for them. And what happens once you get married? Maybe you do that in the, at the beginning stages, but isn't it dangerous over the years that you can become so, just going through the motions with your spouse, not really cultivating that marriage. It happens to all of us. I know you've been there and I've been there as well. 
Are you cultivating your relationship with your spouse? Investing into one another spiritually, physically, emotionally. You know, just like our relationship with the Lord and how we talked last week about being people of the word. And why do we spend time in God's word? Not because we're looking at these, these words on paper, the Bible, but because ultimately they reveal a person, right? And because we have a relationship with God, there, it takes time and effort by the grace of God to, to get to know the Lord, to sit at his feet, to learn from him. It takes time to cultivate a relationship with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's the same thing in our marriages, in our physical relationships. We'll be talking more about this, but let me ask you this. If we were to ask your spouse this question, hey, do you know, do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are number one in Kempis' heart, Andrea? Does your spouse know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are number one in your heart? I want you, I want to give you a little homework this week, okay? Ask them, honey, love, sugar plum, pookie bear, right? Whatever you call pet names, you call your spouse. And don't laugh. You guys have them, okay? My wife and I call each other cutesy and other things. Love, do you know that you are number one in my heart? Is there any doubt in your heart? And if there is, what about me? What about our relationship sends you the message that you are, that I am, that, that you are not the, the priority of their heart? Are you fleshing out the reality that after your relationship with God, your marriage is the greatest priority? That after Jesus, no one even comes close to your spouse. You say, even more than the kids? Yes, more than the kids. Those little, cuddly, chubby, plumpy little ones? Yes. Your spouse trumps above your kids, young or older, brother and sister in Christ. Marriage is the priority above the kids. Listen, you're headed to a separation. To a separation with your kids. The relationship will look different. Some of us are already beginning to experience that. Right? Our kids are growing old, leaving from under the roof of our home. And the relationship's going to change. But marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. We're going to learn this in the next couple of weeks. And listen to me. The greatest gift that you can give your children, husband, wife, is that one day your kids will be able to look back and given all of your struggles and all of your weaknesses and all of your hurts and pains and whatever they saw as far as even your weaknesses in your marriage, that they can say this, my parents were not perfect, but I know two things, that they were passionately in love with God and that they were madly in love with one another. You want your kids to know that in the present and in the future. And you know what? As a side note, that's why I appreciate so many of you grandparents sitting amongst us right now, both here physically and by live stream. 
One of the encouraging things about Calvary Bible Church is this. There is a high level of commitment from people who fall under the umbrella of grandparents in this church. But I also see a great level of commitment to you investing into your kids and your grandkids now to see the same baton passed on. Praise God for you. Thank you. Because we should want to see strong marriages. We should want to see strong families. We should want to display the gospel to our children of a strong marriage. We should want to display Christ and the gospel before a lost world full of hatred and hostility and hurt and pain. We should want to display what a Christ-like marriage looks like to the lost world. That there's power in the gospel, both to reconcile sinners to a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ, and so that our horizontal relationships in our marriage and our parenting to the world and to one another in the church, it's got implications. The gospel does for those relationships. So listen, for those of us who can honestly say this morning, Pastor Kempis, I absolutely love my spouse. You know, we have our struggles. We're not perfect, but we work through those. And we try to exhibit graciousness towards one another. We try to confess our sin to the Lord and to one another. We practice gospel forgiveness, gospel reconciliation. We are happily married. Listen, praise God for that. Praise the Lord for that. Remember that it's by God's grace that you're happily married. But can I encourage you and exhort you as your pastor, don't stop investing into your marriage. Keep working on your marriage. Young couples, don't be afraid of leaving your kids so that you don't even go out on dates together. Come on now. Some of us who are older can tell you, I wish we would have gone on more dates when our kids were little. Find good, godly people who care for your kids, okay? And even if they spoil them rotten and feed them Twinkies and ice cream and all of that, at least you got a date out of it, right? Go out on dates. Cultivate your marriage. You need to work on your marriage. In two weeks, my beautiful bride and I get to go away for three or four days for our 21st wedding anniversary. You know, I'm chomping at the bits. I cannot wait to be with Andrea by myself. I adore my kids. I love them. We have all kinds of memories with them. But listen to me. My favorite person to be with is my wife. By far, by far. So I can't wait. Hopefully she feels the same way. I'll ask her later. Now, for those of you who are in trouble in this area, I just want to encourage you, okay? Maybe even just feeling like you're going through the motions and say, you know what, Pastor, I have become cold and indifferent in that area. I need to be challenged in that area, both as a husband or as a wife. Can I encourage you? Don't wait. Get help. Get help. Discipleship is is, is just life. People investing into one another is not just when you're in trouble. It's to be ongoing in our lives. Relationship for the purpose of conformity to Christ in the context of the local church is what we need to be about. So it's not even about something needing to be troubleshooted in your life. Maybe you just need to be challenged. You need to be discipled specifically in that area. Get help. Find someone, a godly older man or godly older woman in the church and ask them to meet with you. Share your struggles that you are having Listen, talk to one of your shepherds. Talk to one of us. We have seven pastors, elders in this church who would love to hear from you. Ask for help. We have a counseling team in our church that would love to meet with some of you ladies. 
Ladies that would love to meet with some of you. Men that would love to meet with some of you men. Ask for help. Sin grows in isolation, brother or sister. Struggles grow in isolation. We need community. We need the fellowship of one another if we are going to become like Jesus in the power of the Spirit of God. We need one another. So are you accountable to others in the area of your marriage? Ladies, men, are you in some kind of a small group, some kind of a fellowship group where you're interacting on these issues, asking for prayer and praying for others in the area of marriage and family and other aspects of life? And finally, I'll close with this. A word for those of you who are single and looking to, to be married, young or older. Okay? Can I encourage you, single people, unless you have the gift of singleness, you should be looking to get married by the grace of God, praying for that, letting others know you want to be married, right? Let me encourage you with this. Before you can look for the right kind of person, the right kind of Christian, you need to be the right kind of person yourself first and foremost. You need to cultivate a relationship with God. Because nothing's going to change. If you're a slacker, spiritually speaking, you're not a person on the last Sunday who gets into the Word, what do you think, going through a ceremony where you exchange vows with one another, what do you think that's going to make, what kind of change is that going to make to your heart? If you're not walking with the Lord, not cultivating a relationship with the Lord already. It starts now. Being God's kind of man, God's kind of woman starts now if you want to attract the right kind of Christ-like godly woman or man. It starts now. And can I encourage you with this? Choose wisely. Choose wisely. If there's an implication of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage of this text is this, you need to choose wisely. Listen, there are unique exceptions where someone has gotten saved by dating a Christian, but that's a very unique exception. It's not the norm and should not be the pattern. So my caution to you is don't mess around in this area. Be the right kind of man or woman Choose wisely. Well, aren't you thankful we covered a whole two verses? All right. Next week, we're going to look at the gracious teaching of our Lord, okay, in verses 3 through 9. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, our great God, we're living in such a wicked society. and We understand that the only hope for a vertical reconciliation with you is through faith in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And we also understand that healing relationally on the horizontal level can only be the outflow of that vertical relationship. But once you having transformed us through the power of the gospel, there are horizontal implications even to our marriages and our relationships with one another of the gospel. So we pray, Father, help us to be people who display the gospel of Jesus Christ, who exalt our Lord Jesus in the way that we love one another, even in our marriages. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.